Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. Today's episode, we paid tribute to Andrew Breitbart, who passed away 12 years ago today. So we talked with John Nolte, who was Breitbart.com's second hire, and Alex Marlowe, the current editor-in-chief, who is the, who is the first hire from Andrew Breitbart. Uh, so we, we paid tribute in that way and at many others. Uh, Want to present for you here our opening segment where we we tied Andrew Breitbart's life and his his ways <laughs> uh, into uh, a story of the day, and and this is what we try to do all the time, but I've made it a little more explicit. Uh, just the the contempt that they have for you, and Andrew put it right back on them. Today is the 12th anniversary of the death of Andrew Breitbart. We are going to pay tribute to him throughout the show, including Alex Marlowe coming up at 6.30. We have a a rare 6 o'clock hour appearance of the great Alex Marlowe. How about that? The first hire of Andrew Breitbart. So we'll talk to Alex in a little bit. And John Nolte, of course, knew him deeply. Uh, we'll talk with him at 8 o'clock today about who Andrew Breitbart was, the legacy of Andrew Breitbart, and how we can continue on with that legacy like these two men are. And we can every day as well. I also encourage you to go to Breitbart.com. And on the front page of the website is uh, 12 years. The legacy of Andrew Breitbart continues and has a link to f- f- 59, uh, 59 great conservative leaders today who were all inspired by Andrew Breitbart, who have nice words to say about him. So I uh, encourage everyone to, to check that out. I encourage you uh, to check that out. And uh, let's be re-energized with Andrew Breitbart's activism and passion and principles. And here we are. And here the conservative movement is. It would be very different, very different, if Andrew Breitbart uh, didn't fight. And that's it. you got to fight. This is the, you got the picture of him. Right to my right, that if you can, you can watch. If you watch the TV show, you can see it. And it says, walk toward the fire. You know, walk toward the fire. So many people still, not you, but so many people still today are scared, hesitant. Oh, I don't want to. And that was the theme of, of this, this week's podcast, Politics by Faith. Uh, there's a scene where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and, and they leave, and the disciples go to Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, man, like, you offended them. <laughs> Which is great. 2,000 years ago. Wow. Hey, man, Jesus. Ooh, that was a little heavy-handed. Uh, and then Jesus went on to this thing. But uh, you can't care about that. You just have to speak the truth. Oh, yes, there's ways to do it in love. and all. Of course, of course. But, but don't be, 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 be scared coddled or not coddled what's the word that's a better word than skid don't be like when they make you like they make you hesitant isn't the word either but you're just like no i better not and then it's over you missed it just speak the truth give me an example the atlantic 
The headline is, why is Trump trying to make Ukraine lose? Why is Trump trying to make Ukraine lose? This article is from Ann Applebaum. Foreign policy genius. Senior fellow. Are you a senior fellow? You may be old, but are you a senior fellow? You, you may be a, an old fella, but are you a senior fellow? I don't think so. At the Agora Institute, at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Not just international studies, advanced international studies. All right? And went to Yale, and went to Oxford, and won, I believe, two Pulitzer Prizes. She is way better than you. You must be silent in front of her. Do not speak. I was, uh, who was that? I think it was the, one of the queens of Hawaii. One of the Hawaiian queens. Uh, if you ever with, were within her shadow, then you were put to death. You could never be within the shadow. So watch out when, when it was like 4 o'clock or something. Like 4 o'clock on, you better you keep your distance. They'll put you to death if you're with. And it's the same with the geniuses like Ann Applebaum. Senior fellows, Oxford degrees, school of advanced international. Way smart. What are you? What are you, truck driver? You're going you're gonna to go in front of Ann Apple, the likes of Ann Applebaum and question her. And Andrew Breitbart would say, you're darn right. You're darn right. She says the former president isn't in office, but he's still dictating U.S. policy. She uh, she says if you're if you're in the United States, it may be hard to to, to see just how awful he is. <laughs> uh, she talks about how three times in the last eighteen months. We haven't been able to give Ukraine the money that they need. McCarthy tried. He was kicked out. The Senate negotiated a border compromise that was also going to give aid to Ukraine, but the Republicans said no. So then the Senate passed a standalone bill for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, and it's now in the House, and Johnson's just sitting on it, and he's in no rush. And she says, you Americans, you truck drivers, you, you not senior fellows, you people who don't teach at international advanced international study schools. You don't understand how horrible this is. But from the outside, from Warsaw, where I live part-time, from Munich, where I attended a major annual security conference earlier this month, from London, Berlin, and other allied capitals, the very important places of the world. Not where you live. Where do you live? The hills somewhere, the boonies somewhere. What's your, what's your, what, like, what, what's your nearest uh, cultural mecca center? <laughs> right, like the Piggly, the Piggly Wiggly down the street? I was thinking of Piggly Wiggly because there's uh, uh, Albertsons and what's the other one? Kroger? Yeah, Albertsons and Kroger I want to merge. And they would own like, that's like they're the fifth and tenth largest retail stores in the country. Uh and the government's like, mm, I don't know if it's a great idea. But they had to sell off a bunch of their stores to Piggly Wiggly. I think they had to sell 400 stores to Piggly Wiggly, which I'm thrilled about. Because now there's going to be 400 more Piggly Wigglies. So from all these very important places, nobody doubts that these circumstances are unprecedented. 
Donald Trump, who is not the president, is using a minority of Republicans to block aid to Ukraine to undermine the actual president's foreign policy and to weaken American power and credibility. For outsiders, this reality is mind-boggling, difficult to comprehend, and impossible to understand. Do you hear? It's impossible. It's mind-boggling. You and who you support is doing such incredible harm to our country. It is mind-boggling. Impossible to understand. It's not that hard to understand, Ian. It's not that hard. She talked about how she went to go meet a, a senior European Union official, another brilliant mind. He asked me if congressional Republicans realized that a Russian victory in Ukraine would discredit the United States, weaken American alliances in Europe and Asia, embolden China, encourage Iran, and increase the likelihood of invasions of South Korea or Taiwan. Don't they realize? Yes, I told him, they realize. And my European colleague shook his head. He just shook his head. Not because... Not because he didn't believe me, but because it was so hard for him to hear. Oh. Oh. Wow. What a moment. Just ask someone, Ann. It's not that hard to understand. Give me a break. Ask a conservative. Ask someone with a different point of view for the love of you. Go to your, uh, go to your local NASCAR race. I don't know. Like, you ask anyone. I was just at the Texas Motor Speedway. That's what I'm thinking about now. And where, where, where is Anne? She in New York? Where does she hang out? What's the nearest? Uh, Watkins Glen. Watkins Glen is not that far away from Manhattan. Anne, swing up to Watkins Glen the next race day and say, hey, everyone, why do you not want to give Tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Now, 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 Ian, there may not be any advanced studies, international studies, majors, or experts there. I, I bet, I don't, I don't know. I, there's probably no one at Watkins Glen who has ever met a European Union official. Probably not. Maybe you're in D.C. You can go to the Richmond Raceway. It's, it's, it's really close to D.C., right? You just swing, swing by there. Right, I, I, I bet you can find a lot of people who are against giving a blank check to Ukraine forever. But they'll make it real easy for you to understand, Anne. So, so don't give me this. It's difficult to comprehend and impossible to understand. I don't even know what that means. What are you talking about? How, I'd like, go talk to someone. They'll tell you. I was, um, I was talking to someone yesterday. Um, who's the Zach? Help me out. Who's the uh, the guy who did the uh, Richmond North of Richmond? What's his name? Oliver Anthony. Like, Anth- Wait, what'd you say? Anthony Oliver. Oliver. Oh man. Well done. We both got it. Oliver Anthony. <laughs> Oliver Anthony. He went to Oliver Anthony at the Ryman in Nashville. And I, sorry, when he said it to me, I, I was thinking it was the Grand Ole Opry, but maybe maybe it was just an. So I thought he just did a couple of, but maybe it was an Oliver Anthony concert. It may have been a whole thing. And I, I thought of Oliver Anthony the other day. I haven't thought about him for a while. And then I thought of him the other day. I was like, oh, I wonder what he's doing. Apparently, he just got done with a tur- tour in Europe. Oliver Anthony, the Richmond, North of Richmond guy, did a tour in Europe 
And I guess it was crazy. I guess like everyone's like, like uh, you know, let's go Brandon. And like this whole thing, right, in Europe, right? It's great. So, but Oliver Anthony's still just crushing it. And I was like, oh, man, like what was the crowd like? And he said, oh, what? this guy put it. It was, <laughs> it was something like, this is a good old country boy. So he said it perfect. He said, uh, he said, let's just say everyone there can take care of themselves. <laughs> That's how it goes. Everyone there can take care of themselves. They got it. They're fine. So, and you go talk to someone like that. It's not hard. It's not hard. You can look up Oliver Anthony Tor. You can find out where he is next. You just go. And you don't have to talk to Oliver Anthony. I'm not saying he's some sort of sage. But you go go talk to the uh, anyone there. There you go. He'll be in Juniper, Florida tomorrow. Juniper, Florida tomorrow. Okay, swing by Juniper, Florida and uh, and give him a chat. Not him. Anyone there. And are you with me? That's Breitbart's legacy. That to inspire everyone, all these conservatives, to not be afraid to walk towards the fire and and educate people like you. So let me do the best I can. It's just a couple words, and then we'll get to Alex here. Because she's she's stumped. She does it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Now, real quick, I like this is a segment about Ukraine, but it's like not really a segment. You with me? Like that's not really it. It's about just Speaking the truth. That's what Andrew Breitbart, just speak the truth. And maybe when you do that, you'll wake up a few Andrew Breitbarts because Andrew Breitbart, of course, used to be a uh, raging <laughs> liberal. All right, so just in a, in a couple words, listen, if you talk to the people at Watkins Glen or Richmond Raceway or an Oliver Anthony concert, you'll get it in much fewer words, but I'm a radio host, so we'll, we'll drag it out a little bit. First of all, I'm concerned that no one can learn from history, Anne. We just got done with two 20-year-long wars. There were a couple years, 20-year, 20 years, 20 years. There were a couple years in Afghanistan where we had over 100,000 troops there. So it's safe to say over a million American lives were altered because of just one of those wars. You consider the troops that were there, their families, etc. Over a million lives were altered. And in the end, for what, Anne? So I'd like to make sure that we don't do anything that looks anything like that again. Do they chat about that at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, Anne? Do you have a course on not making the same mistake like an idiot right after you just made the mistake? I have to talk to my seven-year-old about that every single day. Be like, Jack, you just made that mistake. Let's learn from our mistakes, son. Second, we're not allies with Ukraine, Anne. So I don't think we're obligated to help them forever without any questions asked. I don't, I don't, it doesn't affect our national security directly. I'm not sure it even indirectly affects our national security, like your European Union friend uh, so talked about. I don't think it makes us look weak to China with regards to Taiwan or South Korea. First of all, North Korea is not attacking South Korea, like, so stop making up dumb fears. But China invading Taiwan is real. But I don't think, listen, if we spend hundreds of billions of dollars to help Ukraine forever, then China's, m- m- like, that just makes us weaker to defend against a Chinese attack of Taiwan. You with me? Like spending hundreds of billions of dollars in Ukraine makes us weaker against threats that are that do affect us more directly. And then the ones that actually affect us directly as well, like an attack here, like our borders. And Anne, I'll give you one more. We'd just like to see some accountability with the money already spent. Her whole article never talked about that. 
some accountability with the money we've already spent in a country that is so corrupt that you yourself attacked when Trump talked to the then president of that country, this guy that no one's ever heard of, who you now kiss the butt of, Zelensky. It's a super corrupt place. Maybe we stop giving them hundreds of billions of dollars without any accountability, and that's it. Trump's goal is peace. You think it's, it's so, uh, I, I can't even fathom, it's unfathomable what's going his, his goal is peace. He wants everyone to knock it off. No one, and on the left, is talking about that. All you talk about it with, with Israel is a ceasefire. It's all I ever hear is a ceasefire. Never hear about it with Ukraine. Because newsflash, and Ukraine's not going to win. There's no winning here. There's no winning. So Ukraine's not going to invade Moscow and take over Russia. Right? That's not happening. So, okay. Russia has an endless stream of people that they can pull from. Endless. They will never they will never lose. Russia will not lose. We talked to Senator Ron Johnson about this last time he was on. He was on yesterday. Last time we talked to him. We talked, Ru- Russia will not lose. Do you know how many people, how many Soviets died during World War II? Little little perspective. It was like 380,000. It was under, under 400,000 American service members died. Under 400,000 American service members died during World War II. It's a lot. 27 million Soviets died during World War II. 27 million. 9 million in the military, and the rest were uh, civilian. So we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll do the 9 million. 9 million Soviet service members. 9 million, right? They have a lot of people. And we have more people, but they have a lot of people that they will pluck from their lives and put them on the front lines to die. They'll never lose. So find a peace deal. Let Russia say they won and move on to what really matters, which is our country here. That's it. And I don't know what they're teaching you at Oxford. I don't know what you're teaching the kiddos at your advanced school of international studies. Like the idea that you put advanced, that Johns Hopkins put advanced in the title of the school, I find it so obnoxious. <laughs> so, like that is... School of Advanced International Studies. Like, get over yourselves. I, I, I find it's a, I, I, there's no way you've never heard that analogy. There's, there's no way, maybe you never have heard it, but there's no way, if, as I just lay it out here, that you find that mind-boggling, difficult to comprehend, and impossible to understand. So get over yourself, Anne. So that that's that's Andrew Breitbart. To snap out of it, snap out of that daze, and speak some common sense, and for us to not be afraid of these people. You with me? These people used to be able to walk, used to walk around with this this air of superiority, and and when I said that, I mean. It used to be real. People used to think of them as superior. That's what I mean. Of course, they would walk around with that air of superiority, but it, but it worked in the sense that people looked at them as superior. And, and now I sure hope you don't. I sure hope you don't. 
Check out this ending. She said the damage he has done, Trump has done, to all of America's relationships is real. Anton Hofreiter, a member of the German parliament. Oh, this is such a good ending. <laughs> this is so, like, ah, oh, the self-importance. Uh, a member of the German parliament told me in Munich that he fears Europe could someday be competing against three autocracies. Russia, China, and the United States. Wow. Mm. Mm. With Trump, with you, you're going to turn America into a dictatorship, along with Russia and China. Now Europe's going to be fighting against, against us. When he said that, it was my turn to shake my head. Not because I didn't believe him, but because it was so hard to hear. Laugh, laugh, laugh in their face. These people. There's an article in Politico yesterday, and I'm grateful for uh, Christina for putting it on Breitbart.com as well, making us all aware of it. The, this is Politico. The prospect of a second Trump presidency has the intelligence community on edge. Trump sought major, this is the deep state, Trump sought major changes at the intel agencies at his, in his first term. Former officials say he could be more radical in a second. Good. They spoke to 18 former deep state officials and analysts who hated Trump and had lines like, much of the rebuilt trust could evaporate overnight if Trump is elected. The deep state turning once again against Trump and against you. So, Ann, you swing by an Oliver Anthony concert. You swing by a NASCAR race. Tune in to Breitbart News Daily. Click over to Breitbart.com. And you'll get a point of view. There's no question. No one's hiding this, of course. Because we believe we're right. But it's very simply put, it's America first. That's it. Do I have time to play this? I think we do before Alex gets here, right? This is, uh, here's, an ex- here's an example of not America first. <laughs> Just a little perspective here. This is Kathy Hochul, governor of New York State. I'm anxious to get this moving quickly. And once they're approved, we can match people to jobs. Uh, they don't need to be reliant on services any longer, which I think is the objective, to not have people supported by tech. Sorry, that was the second clip. Let's do this one. Here you go. It's up here. We need them. I hear this in every corner of the state. Governor Kathy Hochul's administration recently agreed to a proposal that could make it easier for migrants to get temporary jobs in state government. Approved earlier this month, the Civil Service Commission is working with agencies to implement the changes, which include dropping typical application requirements like proof of a high school diploma or proficiency in English. Amazing. All right, so you with me? So we're giving illegal immigrants government jobs, and they don't require, like you would, a high school diploma or the ability to speak English. So call me crazy. I don't think they're going to be very good at their job. So this is what you call a patronage job. This is a patronage job. This is a handout to people who would elect you and a thank you to them. And a, hey, hey, make sure you get us elected next time. So an illegal immigrant comes to America, breaks all sorts of laws coming here. Once they're here, they can break more laws. Doesn't matter. Then they get a government job. Surely they don't have to show up to work ever or do anything if they ever happen to stumble upon their workplace. 
They don't even speak English. So, uh, and it's impossible to ever get fired from any government job ever. No way would they fire an illegal immigrant. The lawsuits come flying from discrimination. Oh, you discriminated against me because of my immigration status. So they'll never get fired. So now we'll have, she said 10,000, 10,000 illegal immigrants on the taxpayer dime in the state workforce. Oh, you know what Breitbart said yesterday, Breitbart.com? Uh, they, they, the new word, you know the new word for illegal immigrants? This is great from the White House. New word for illegal immigrants. Ready? Here we go. Incoming. You ready for this? The new word for illegal immigrants. Newcomers. Says that we're just hiring 10,000 newcomers for the state government, state pension, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So that's not America first. <laughs> so, Anne, why are we against endless and unaccountable government, whether it's Ukraine <laughs> or ours? Wake up, Anne. Wonderful to talk to the great Alex Marlowe, editor-in-chief, Breitbart.com. Alex, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Mike. Thank you for making time for me this morning to talk about one of the most important men in the history of American media. I want to talk about where we'd be without him and how we need to continue his legacy. But let's go back to you and him. Uh, you, you were the first hire at Breitbart, right? So, so how did you meet him and, and give us that whole Genesis story? Wow. Um, yeah, it's a I was a very active college Republican conservative uh, right leaning person when I was on the UC Berkeley campus about 20 years ago. And uh, Andrew, I was a voracious news consumer and I was a huge fan of the Drudge Report. And uh, Andrew was one of the editors of the Drudge Report at the time. And he spoke at an event for young college activist types that I attended. And he gave this wild, unwieldy speech where he was talking about flaming bags and feces. He did not use the word feces. He about how culture is upstream from politics, an idea that was totally novel at the time. And he was talking about his life growing up as a liberal in Hollywood and how he got converted because of the Clarence Thomas trial, or essentially was show trial, and listening to Rush Limbaugh. It was an unbelievable story that really resonated with me because we were virtually from the same neighborhood. And I went up and approached him, and I said, do you have a building in Dusseldorf where you have hundreds and thousands of people typing out stories every day in the news? <laughs> and he said, no, it's just me, and I syndicate all these, all these news feeds. But I'm probably going to be launching this family of websites. Uh, do you think he would want to help? And I said, I think I wouldn't want to help. That sounds great. And so 21-year-old me became the first employee of what would go on to become Andrew's empire. And there was pretty much no turning back from that initial conversation for me. So 12 years ago, I mean, I guess that, that long, it depends how you look at it, but, but take us back to the, the internet landscape 12 years ago. Because now we're like, oh yeah, Breitbart.com, of course. But that's, that's not what it looked like 12 years ago. Yeah, and that's such a great frame a, a frame to talk about Andrew's legacy, there was no internet landscape. And that's what I mean. my news, I was aware that what the left was doing and continues to do 
is they would put out their propaganda, their talking points, their vision for the world. And they would pretend it was neutral. Of course, it wasn't. But they were using the web to advance their viewpoint and to enhance their biases across the cultural spectrum. And the, the right was eventually going to do this. And Andrew was going to be the guy to do it. He was the perfect person to shepherd the conservative movement into the digital age. It was very clear from the start. He was the guy to do it. And he had a couple tricks up his sleeve. First of all, he had this massive Rolodex from his time at the Drudge Report. And people forget he also founded the Huffington Post, uh, which he thought was a genius strategy for his liberal former boss, Ariana Huffington, to leverage her Rolodex of left-wing Hollywood types to essentially make money and create content for conservative media and conservative radio. So Andrew was involved in Huffington Post at the start. So he was perfectly positioned to do it. But the thing that Andrew did, which I thought was so cool and classy and brilliant, was he said, we're actually going to state our biases. We're going to tell you where we're coming from and let you judge us accordingly, unlike all the frauds in the establishment media. Mm. That last kernel, I really think, set him apart from anything anyone was doing anywhere in the media and really was the essence of why it became a success. I got, I got a lot more bigger picture questions, but uh, one more about, well, a few more. Um, how did you find out 12 years ago today that he died of a heart attack? Yeah, th this one is just the most surreal moment of my life, maybe, was I got a call from Steve Bannon, who was executive chairman of Breitbart at the time, and it had to be 3.30 in the morning. And Steve called me pretty much all hours of the night between 4 a.m. and 3 a.m., so I knew that the one hour from 3 to 4 a.m., he typically would sleep. So <laughs> I knew it was very bad news. And I, when he told me that Andrew had died, you, you don't even know how to process that type of information because it's so shocking. Uh, I was so close with him and his family. I worked in his basement. My wife tutored his children. Uh, we were about to relaunch his website with the new cool orange and black look that we still have today. It, it was all percolating, and then all of a sudden he just drops dead. True, truly the out-of-body moment of my life if I've ever had one. It took me years to fully process it, what had happened, but that was, the, the, that was how I found out. He was only 43, and, that, that's, and that's part of the Rush Limbaugh tribute, and like at the very least, the lesson that life is short. That's like the bare minimum life lesson. From all this yeah, season. and I was 25 at the time, and um, or I guess 26 at the time, and now I'm 38, so I'm a lot closer to 43 than I am to 25, and I recall a lot of people that I admired so much in conservative media were kept referring to him as a young man, you know, Clarence Thomas, Michael Savage, <laughs> you know, people who, and like, he's a young man, he's 43, he's got you know, four kids, I mean, that's not that young. Well, now that I'm pretty close to 43, I can tell you, I would like to think of that as a young man. I would like to think of Andrew's journey as just starting. And just to think of what the possibilities would have been during the rise of Trump, which, of course, is directly attributable to Andrew and his legacy of uh, online trolling and being able to use mockery and ridicule to, uh, uh, to devastate the left. Of course, that goes straight to Andrew. Uh, but what would he be seeing in America now? It's very hard to put words in his mouth, but that is so tempting to play that game because he really was only going to get better for decades to come. Oh, great point. 
Um, so on Breitbart.com right now, there is, or there's 59 videos right in the front page. Breitbart.com, paying tribute to Andrew Breitbart. Please go and, and, and click a couple of them, if not all of them. And uh, our very own Jerome Hudson did one of them. And his tribute was about Andrew's public speaking and how he would get up there and just blow everyone out of the water. What, what, tell, tell us about that. Like, why was he different up there? Obviously, he was different everywhere. There's, there's different hats. But what was, his, what was his public speaking persona that was so powerful? Yeah, it's, he's a classic case of turning perceived weaknesses into strengths because <laughs> he was incapable of giving a speech. Not, not, I don't want to give a speech, Mike. I, I've given a couple. They're hit or miss. I like just to be able to talk similar to talk radio style, just try to communicate with, with an audience as if it's a personal thing. That's my preference. I can physically give a speech. It is possible for me to do it. Andrew <laughs> cannot give a speech. He could not do it. So he's out there and he's just winging it. He's talking about whatever pops into his mind. He's talking about what he just saw on the TV. Uh, Mark Levin talks about how Andrew talked about the cookies he had in a green room for five minutes. And, and this is at a massive event. That's great. I love it. So, so, so th- th- this is just his style. It was so off the cuff that he honed it into a unique voice where it was so unpredictable. It was like watching improv comedy, the excitement level that it would bring because he was just raw energy. And that's what he was bringing as a voracious consumer of media and as a fearless provocateur. That's what he brought to his speeches. So you never knew what you were going to get. Occasionally it'd be unwieldy and not successful, and that'd be sort of amusing. But oftentimes <laughs> he would find brilliance in those moments. And I think that's probably what Jerome was talking about. Okay. I want to play a clip here of Greg Gutfeld, which I think falls into that point. And then I want to focus on the word uh, fearless provocateur. But here's Greg Gutfeld. The, uh, the greatest things about Red Eye was Andrew Breitbart coming on. He was one of the first guests. I think he was on the very first show. And he was always interested in doing something that no one else would do. He, like me, was in love with the 1970s, with Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin and Dinah Shore. He saw these talk shows as something dangerous or weird or abnormal. And so he always tried to go to the extra mile to make everybody feel uncomfortable. And he succeeded every time he was on the show. We're going to talk to Nolte coming up at 8 o'clock, and I, I want to ask him about the 70s and, <laughs> like, like what that means, like where, what yeah. part of his persona came out of that. But even just the dangerous and weird part of late-night TV, like, like how is dangerous and weird a, a part of Andrew Breitbart? Yeah, he really, and I, he and I have the same sense of humor in this way. He loved making people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and unlike me, I, I tend to wait until I, I, I feel like I've got a good target he would just do it to everyone. He would just make everyone uncomfortable. And he got a kick out of it. And it is a really underrated part of his personality because he was so hilarious. And if you watch the videos you have at Breitbart.com, that is often repeated how funny Andrew was. But he also had this amazing ability just to make you wildly uncomfortable. But that's good. That's healthy. That's life. And Andrew used to see the media environment, specifically talk shows, as a place to do that. What are talk shows now? It's all safe corporate BS. That's yeah. all they are. They do anything provocative or edgy. Andrew yeah. did it every time he was on a show. Literally rehearsed. Like all the talk shows, people may not know that are rehearsed. They're rehearsed ahead of time. 
None of those conversations are organic or real. It's all like, oh, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Like, Jimmy Fallon knows the answer to what did you do last weekend already. He, exactly. Like, it's all... and, and he's representing a corporate brand, and he's interviewing only people who are representing other corporate brands. Yeah. It is all the safest, just completely <laughs> non-exciting. They're designed not to cause attention, not to cause a stir. Uh, Andrew just never would have approached a single interview that way ever. He would have rejected that premise out of hand. Okay, so fearless provocateur, other than a fun word to say. What good is that? So here's here's what Andrew understood that beyond he said this terrific news knows, and that's where he made his bones in the first portion of his career. He understood that you know being on the cutting edge of the news uh, is a good business. It's not a great business, but it's a good business. <laughs> and that's where he got his start. But he also understood that in order to get attention to stories, you need to be willing to use tactics like mockery, like ridicule, like taking a bullhorn out somewhere, like trying to do a viral video by calling someone a name in an unexpected way, uh, going to a protest, but don't just go to the protest, show up in roller skates, uh, things like that that he would do to get online attention. Then he would direct them, though, not to goofball stuff. He would direct them to very serious content. He would direct them to, you know, our rap sheet on how many rapes and violent assaults were taking place at Occupy Wall Street. But he would do it through, you know, showing up at a at a at a rally and yelling, "Stop raping people! Stop raping the people!" Which seems unhinged at the time. But then you realize you find yourself online looking up what is he talking about, and you realize he's telling the truth. That's the sort of thing that all of conservative media has uh, understood and learned, but they got it from him. He was the first guy who was doing it. Well, telling the truth is the important end of that. You need the ending. Otherwise, you're just a clown. Yes. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. That is so crucial because a lot of people in this movement have one or the other. They're either a good journalist uh, and they're honest or they're a, a successful at getting attention. There's still very few who can do both, who can get you to pay attention, and then they deliver on the content in a way that could change the world. Uh, really good point. Uh, okay, someone's listening right now. It's, it's 6.45 in the morning. Andrew Breitbart passed away a, a 12 years ago today. What can I, this truck driver, regular guy, a gal, do in my life different now based off his legacy and 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 uh, life? Well, the obvious one is to support the people who are trying to carry out his legacy. Uh, those, are, of course, are the people at Breitbart.com is number one. But also look for those that a specific set of character traits that I just noted. People who can use humor, people who use uh, uh, fun and trying to have a good time in the news and trying to enjoy beating the left. But also, in the, at the very end, the end of the day, I don't love that expression, but at the end of the day, they ground it in truth and are not just about themselves, that they're fighting for the people. And that's what Andrew did, that everyone knows this about him in his heart, is that he was fighting for the people. It wasn't just about him. He was on the sidelines for so long. He only stepped out when he felt like his unique voice was necessary to the media landscape. And I think about all the time when I think about – uh, how big we want to, how much involvement I want to have personally in something. Andrew didn't make himself the story until it was necessary. He used all the tools in your toolkit. And if people are following that model, it's a winning model and they deserve your support. Hmm. Last question, Larry O'Connor, 
uh, made a nice little post about everyone who was there 12 years ago. And of you, he said, Alex Marlowe was there laughing and working harder than all of us. And I know I ask this a lot, but the laughing part I think is really important, especially as things get way more serious in these next eight months or so. And that's just the beginning. Then when Trump wins, it's going to be another four years of absolute chaos. Why is the laughing important? I, I love that. I love Larry's post. It's really terrific. People should find it. The, the one thing, though, is I was probably not working as hard as Andrew. And that's the one thing I will add is I, I could outwork anyone, but it's very hard to outwork Andrew. He was a 24-7 beast. The laughing, of course, is essential to who he is. It's essential to who we are, Breitbart. There's so many headlines every day we put out there, tongue-in-cheek, and are meant to be fun and are meant to get, to get a rise out of you and make you feel not just negativity about what's going on, but to see a little humor in it. Um, but I, I, I saw that post and I thought maybe I was working hard, but maybe the second hardest in the room. Andrew is always working the first hardest. And that's another core thing about his character. Alex Marlowe, editor-in-chief, Breitbart.com. Alex, thanks for chatting, man. Appreciate you. My thanks for all the time. And everyone, please check out this amazing uh, collage that we have at Breitbart.com yes. of all these wonderful tributes from President Trump to Mark Levin to Tucker. So many people gave their their blessings and their uh, their words of how Andrew touched their lives. It's a stunning crop of people. Um, thanks to the wonderful senior management team at Breitbart, particularly John Kahn, putting this together. Uh, they deserve it. Deserves a lot of time. Uh, so if you can make it on Breitbart.com day and check it out, it will mean a lot to me. Yes, and and thank you for as Rush Limbaugh said, continuing maintaining the tradition, the energy, and the effectiveness of all of his websites. Here we are 12 years later. And, pretty good. And Mike, you and, you and SiriusXM are a big part of that too, so thanks to both both entities. Thanks, Alex. Have a great day, brother. Uh, Breitbart.com. Uh, right on the front page. 12 years, the legacy of Andrew Breitbart continues. I'm American made. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily this week. Uh, wonderful emails. I haven't gone through them all because I haven't. I had to get through the week first before I could really wrap my head around coaching my kids' soccer. Practice starts on Monday, by the way. But I got a ton of emails uh, from advice on how to coach seven-year-old boys' soccer. Not so much on the drills. My wife yesterday, she said, do you know what the positions are called? Can you believe the disrespect? Do you know what the positions are called? Wife. Uh, so I don't need that advice. But any dealing with p kids, it seems like a, a common theme of dealing with parents. So anything in those regards uh, would be great. But the ones I've already looked at, there's a lot of great life advice in there as well and fathering advice. It's really cool. So we'll go over all those on, on Monday. But if you have any more, Slater at Breitbart.com is my email. Slater at Breitbart.com.